0: Good morning, men, and thank you for uh, coming out. We have been studying in Grace and Granite the sort of the practical implications for our lives um, that come to us from our understanding of our God, our relationship to him, his nature, his character. We've looked at his supremacy. We've looked at his uh, knowledge and the infiniteness of his knowledge one of the implications from the sovereign purposes of God, the, the passage in Ephesians 1 11 when we were looking at it a few weeks back that he works out all things after the counsel of his own will. One of the implications of this <clears throat> is, is this great reality that everything God does in our lives is purposeful and deeply meaningful and eternal. It has eternal implications. And that reality is to be embraced by us, by faith, so that whenever we face whatever we face every day, we're affected by that truth. We're changed in our response to God and our response to circumstances. And whether we have any earthly explanation or not, to what is going on around us. Whether we see with clarity some purpose or meaning in it, we have the promise of God that He is working in and through it to bring about the highest good of His people for all eternity and His glory. So we know this truth, but I want to look at it this morning, especially as it relates to this great doctrine, not only of His supremacy and sovereignty, but also the doctrine of concurrence, as it is called in theological circles, or how we might understand it, the doctrine of God's providential workings for the good of His people. Now let's first begin in Romans chapter eight, where we have these wonderful, familiar words in a great section of Scripture on what God has given to us, how He relates to us in the gospel. We have been given the power to obey His law. We now have the power to uh, destroy sin, or at least uh, sap it of its strength, to mortify it as. Verse 13 indicates. We have the Spirit of God as as the power within us to create new inclinations toward God. We no longer serve the, the law of sin, but we serve the law of God. We were previously hostile to it. Now we're no longer hostile to it. We have by the Spirit of God been been reminded that we are sons. We are led by the Spirit of God. We are no longer in the fear of the spirit of slavery, enslavement to sin, enslavement to judgment, and therefore this constant guilt that is compounding all the time as it was in our unbelieving life. The Spirit of God testifies that we are His children, testifies in two ways. One is the killing of sin The more you believe the truth about God and take his word in that Ephesians 6 embattlement to the temptations of Satan, the more the power of God um, taking you over those temptations and into victory demonstrates that you're God's child. That is one way that the Spirit testifies you're his child power over sin. The second way is that in the spirit of adoption, given by the Spirit of God, there is this pull back to a relationship with God so that whenever you have drifted or whenever you are wondering if God is there, whenever you're calling out to Him or praying, walking through your daily life, there's this pull back to this sweet, intimate relationship with God whereby we cry out to God for that intimate relationship. Even when you sin as a Christian, The Spirit of God pulls you toward God rather than leaving you to yourself or giving you over as you had been in your previous life. And in that way, the Spirit is testifying to you that you're his child. You cry out to him, Abba, Father, as indicated in verse 15. So we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, and of course, that means or has implications for our sufferings, which is why Paul says if indeed we are suffering as he suffered, we are entering into the sufferings of Christ in a fallen world from here until we meet him. So that's no secret, no, no strange thing to us. Furthermore, we are to consider the sufferings of this life unworthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed. Creation itself testifies to this as it is waiting to be set free from its slavery. And as the world is groaning, as the earth is groaning, waiting for its redemption, Christians in their suffering also groan. But we have this guarantee, this promise That through all our suffering, the Spirit of God is working these things for our best. In fact, even when we pray, Paul says, and we don't really know how to pray, we don't know for what often to pray. In fact, if you think about it, in life and in regard to your job and in your duties and responsibilities and in your sufferings and in your challenges in this life, you go before God and you pray, but there is always a sense of ignorance in our prayers we pray the truth we pray to god we petition him he promises to listen all that's going through our minds but how much do you really know about what he's accomplishing how much do we really know about what he's doing in our sufferings and in our in his workings in our life so our prayers are limited and we're given this sweet promise that the spirit of god goes before God interceding for us in our prayers, verse 26, with a communication with the Father that is intimately acquainted with the purposes of God, the will of God, and our need. And the Spirit of God in that intercession matches them up. He matches them up with groanings It's called here Some Divine Communication about Your Specific Needs, translated to the Father to be able to meet your needs and um, make up for your ignorance in your prayers. Your prayers are heartfelt, they're passionate. They go as far as temporal life. They go as far as what we see. Might even be filled with insights as the truth intersects your life and you pray for the right things. You might even pray scripture and be praying the truth itself. But we don't know the full purposes of God as he's carrying out what he's carrying out. The promise here is the Spirit translates all that to God. Why does the Spirit do that? So that when your needs are met by God, All things are working together for our good because we are those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. He called us effectually. He saved us. He put His love within us, Romans 5. And as that love manifests itself in our love for God and we go to Him and pray, the Spirit of God takes all of our prayers, limited as they are, and translates them to the Father, matching our, our need with the Father's purposes that work themselves out in our lives for our greatest eternal good. You're never then outside of the workings of God in his purposes. Which is why Paul says in verse 28, We know this. We know it. This is how the Spirit has been given. This is what the Spirit reveals about what He does. Therefore, we know that God is working all things together for good. Because we love God, He put that love there. We're called according to His purpose. He called us to this purpose. And so we're taught to to trust in God's character and his goodness, even when we don't understand what good could possibly result from what is happening. God isn't obligated to share that with us. In fact, to grow our faith, which is our highest good, he often doesn't put the purpose plainly before us. Nor would we be able to understand the many purposes that are not given to us, are not revealed to us, because they are infinite. We couldn't understand the infinite purposes of God were he to lay them out to us. We have 66 books given to us in the canon of Scripture, and it is inexhaustible in and of itself, and it's just from start to finish, we read it and it isn't um, an endless print. It is 66 books. It has a beginning and an end, and yet its depth is inexhaustible. Its purposes are infinite. So if God were to come along and tell us all the meaning and purposes of all he's doing in our circumstances, what would we possibly do to understand it? So he doesn't even do that. What he does promise to us is that in his goodness and in calling us to his purpose and for his infinite glory, he is using all of our circumstances for that infinite good, that infinite glory for all eternity. So what do we tend to do? Well, we tend to think that I could grow in my faith some other way, Lord, I'm sure of it. But that wouldn't be true or we wouldn't be going through what we're going through. Our faith is intended to be strengthened. We're called by God to grow in our endurance so that as these various trials come, endurance is having its perfect result, its complete result, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That has to include faith. That has to include the strengthening of the very thing that allows us to actually please God, because apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. So he is growing our faith. One of the ways he grows our faith is calls, uh, he calls us to trust in his concurrence, his providence, his working of all these things. So what we desperately need is not a a delineation of all of the meaning and purposes behind what he's doing. We just need him. We need the goodness of God coming to our hearts in his promise that by his spirit, by the intercession, God is causing all things to work together concurrently. If you take scripture passages about this great doctrine of God purposing to be good to his people and to bring about eternal purposes for his glory and you combine them together into a definition of concurrence or providence, it would come out something like this. Providence is the continuous activity of God in his creation by which he preserves and governs. And this doctrine of providence affirms God's absolute lordship over his creation and it confirms the dependence of all creation on the creator. So to expand it a little bit, God is continually preserving and governing his creation as we have studied this doctrine before, but he does so in concert with, so to speak, in concert with all the free moral actions of his creatures. So whenever the church has tried throughout history to capture the essence of providence, it has resulted in great statements in theology, one most notably being the confession at Westminster, they stated it like this, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least. And he does so by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge, which we've already studied, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. That is to say, it never changes. It has been decreed. It's decreed out of his character, out of his infinite knowledge, and it cannot change because it it cannot imply, we might say, that God somehow re-looked at things and did a course correction. He looked back and saw maybe he didn't anticipate something like we studied weeks ago that the open theists had tried to claim. No, God in his most wise and holy providence upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things according to his infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will And he does so to the praise of the glory of these qualities within God, his power, his wisdom, his justice, his goodness, his mercy. that's why he does it. To put himself on display in his creation, both now and forever. I think it's interesting that sometimes when we think about why in the world he would allow evil And that is, of course, a a great study. But when we often think about why he would allow evil, we rarely talk initially about his providence, and yet I think that's the biggest mistake. When you think about why God would allow evil, and then you look at the last portion of the Westminster Confession statement, you find an initial answer that swallows up your initial concerns and fears. He does all of these things to the praise of the glory of his perfections. So if decreeing and ordaining and providentially outworking a plan that includes evil, but it would ultimately result in his display of his perfections, to the only and greatest level they could be displayed for God to remain God, then it makes sense. As horrific as sin and corruption have been in humanity, the praise of the glory of God is not to be imagined as diminished simply because evil has reigned so long. In other words, said another way, as bad as evil is, there must be something in the praise and honor of God's perfections that when displayed swallow up any concern about whether evil has existed for a time if the praise of the glory of God will occur throughout all eternity and has always been because God's glory has never ended it is infinite then a season of creation that has resulted in devastation and corruption but which will put his perfections on display at the greatest and most infinite level, well, therein lies your answer. At least insofar as we can understand it, the mystery of it. At least insofar as we can understand the devastation of it, which has an answer. Whatever framework, theologically, you want to apply to it, compatibilism or any other version of a framework that tries to understand why evil exists, we do have an initial answer In this statement about his providence, he does all of these things to the praise of the glory of his perfections, which, being infinite, far outweigh, far and away subsume and swallow up any concern his creation might have over a season of devastation. It would have to. You say, well, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to resolve that tension in me. Of course, because we're finite. God has no tension about it. In fact, that is how concurrence works. As we study providence, we note that it is the ultimate will of God that is working itself out in a world mysteriously, that seems to be operating on its own. We are moral agents. We are making moral decisions all the time. It seems to us in our finite creaturehood, it seems independent of the workings of God. And yet the scriptures tell us that it is not. He is working all things together, and the language is causal here. God causes all things. Causes all things. So he is, of course, the finite and ultimate cause of everything, and he is the one bringing about its meaning and its purpose even while to the creature and to creation itself, it may seem to be operating by fixed laws that have nothing behind them working. God says it is all working concurrently by his power, by his cause, as the first cause of all things, the finite cause of all things we see this in Scripture all over the place, and, and so I want to begin to look at providence, spread it out, and then look at its implications for how we think through our response to God in our life. You know, look, while it may seem that we're independent, making all of our decisions as moral agents on the earth in some sort of autonomous way, Christians know that God is working in and through all of it providentially. So that ought to stop us up short in in at least two ways initially, though lots of other ways, in at least two ways initially. Number one, I I do nothing um, by my own um, independent strength and prowess. It is important to be humbled by the doctrine of concurrence and God's providence because mankind loves to imagine that the things that we achieve are our own. We've achieved them by our own self, strength, talent, wisdom, intellect, ingenuity, insight, prowess that somehow our achievements therefore are possessed by us solely by us for our trophy case. Providence cuts right through the middle of that tendency and we're immediately humbled. Wait a minute. God is working all these things, causing them all to work together I I am finite, limited, and even the Old Testament says God gives me the power to make wealth. You're a physical laborer who gave you your creation and your breath of life and your strong back and your bone structure. You're an achiever by schooling and intellect. Who gave you a mind to apprehend something and then take that as an analogical principle and apply it to some field or discipline. Who gave you the ability? What do you have that you did not receive? Paul will remind the church. God is not relegated merely to the things of redemption. We are his creatures. John or or, uh, Paul on Mars Hill, Acts 17 said to the pagan culture, God gives us life and breath in all things. He determines our, boundaries and our habitation. He will tell you this far you will go and no further. So in one sense the doctrine of providence and God causing all things concurrently to work helps humble us in our achievements. God has allowed this. God has put circumstances together. God has opened doors and closed others. God has given opportunity. God has given me mental ability and strength. Even the moments today to think what I thought that brought about this outcome, God brought those things about. It's humbling. But it also humbles us in another sense, that when things do not go as we would desire, we are humbled to remember the promise of God that He has purposes that go beyond human beings being comfortable, being always settled in this life, attaching yourself to the things of this earth when eternity is our fixation. Things above is where our mind is to be set. God's providence humbles us. He doesn't operate like we do. He doesn't set things forth as we want them set forth. We're reminded of the prophet's words in Isaiah 55. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Beloved, think of the implications just of that reality on a daily basis. When something unfolds that incites human fear and uncertainty and struggle and strain and trial. Our minds are to go immediately to Isaiah 55 and alongside of it, the doctrine of God's providence, the purpose and meaning he has in it, causing all things to work together for the praise of his perfections, And the thoughts he is having, the reasonings of our triune God for what is unfolding, are higher than our reasonings. They're infinite reasonings. So so it's humbling on that front to immediately admit, Lord, your thoughts are not only higher There in many ways, like the Apostle Paul couldn't help but express when he broke forth in praise, who has been your counselor? Who understands your unfathomableness? What you're thinking and doing in a circumstance is unattainable unless you reveal it to me. And even if you did reveal it to me, it would be foolish for me to imagine that I could interpret it in a way that made sense and produced holiness in me, right? If God stops at revelation here and doesn't give me any more, is it not also for my good? Lord, you haven't given me satisfactory answers. Oh, Aren't his thoughts higher than our thoughts? Hasn't he revealed exactly what he wants to reveal? Hasn't he gone as far as he wants to go? Didn't he even say to one particular individual whom he showed things in heaven personally? The Apostle Paul. And when the Apostle Paul came back, he never wrote a word of it, though he was under the inspiration of the Spirit writing Scripture, 13 Inspired writings, and he never wrote a single thing about what he was exposed to in the glories of the third heaven, because he said he was forbidden to say them. Second Corinthians twelve. Wow. And you you immediately think, why be forbidden? Couldn't that be great evangelism? Apparently not. Or God would have written them how many times have we avoided having our morning devotions in the book of Revelation because there are things in there too wonderful for us and you want some place for Paul to describe what he saw in heaven God's thoughts are higher the experience of the glories of his perfections are higher What would we do with them? Complain about them? Of course we would. If you don't think so, you're not sufficiently yet humbled by the higher thoughts of God. What would we do with them? We would say it's not enough. Even though we don't understand his higher thoughts, we would take them in, process them, and act like we understood them. Sorry. We're ignorant. Pathetic. Then what would we do? we would likely worship the human being who told us them. I've often wondered when I've been looking at an ancient scroll. I remember being in Israel and several of us guys were in the museum there and we were reading Isaiah's scroll. And we were finding places like Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 55 in the Hebrews so we could read it and actually somebody from the bus had to come running back because the bus had already taken off and four of us were not on the bus because we just didn't want to leave the scroll. And as we were reading it, I remember having this little discussion with the guys. Isn't it interesting that God never let the original autographs be left behind? That's right, because instead of the content, instead of bowing to the content, we would have worshiped the parchment we would have turned it into a relic and put it in a glass case and charged you money to come and genuflect in front of it while we, the curators of this great museum piece, are holy because God gave it to us. To This is what we would have done with it. It's exactly what we would have done with the Apostle Paul's revelation had he given it to us. And we wouldn't have understood it. It would have been too high for us. God knows all of this. Why is that important? Because it begins the process of our response to what's happening to us in our life and is important as it relates to this wonderful doctrine of concurrence. We must understand God, whatever he is doing, is preserving and directing and purposing. He is preserving all of his creation. He is directing all of his creation. And he is purposing glory through his creation. We have lost this as men, as Christian men in the church, in our culture. We've lost this. Evangelicals think so much like elementary schoolyard children boasting about what they know and yet juvenile and ignorant in their proclamations and boastings. No wonder that God has been so woefully and sinfully scorned when we suffer in this life questioned as to his goodness when we suffer no wonder not only are we mere flesh not only are we weak the spirit might be willing but the flesh is weak but it's also true that if we don't understand the doctrine of God's providence and his concurrent working for the praise of his glory if we don't embrace it learn it bow down to it trust it when we go through trials if we don't pay the cost by bowing our hearts and wills to it which requires, of course, the grace of God. You can't do it in your own willpower. But until we do that, and unless we do that, we can't pass on to our sons and daughters this great settledness, this great reality, this eternal perspective. So let's just kind of look at each aspect of it. First of all, in concurrence, God is preserving all things. And you see this when you look at the most ancient book in the canon, Job. Job 34. Just for starters. In Job 34, when he's being counseled by his counselors, Elihu is speaking up. And in verse 34... When he's speaking about this preserving work of God. He says, if God should take back his spirit to himself, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. So every breath, is sustained. This is like when the New Testament says that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. He means every breath. He means every atom. He means every molecule. It's exactly what he means. And Elihu speaks of it here. If he should determine to do so, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath. If while sitting here, every breath you take ends because God said you're not going to breathe another breath, it's over. You say, no, I I breathe because my heart's still beating and my brain tells everything to breathe and everything's moving along. Um, This is, of course, one of the reasons physicians will have much to answer for who have not looked at the creation of man and understood their need for God and judgment to come because they will have seen all these processes work and not recognize that God sustains it all. God's the one beating the heart. God's the one giving the breath. He is not this deity that theistically started a process and let go of it. He must sustain it all and that is what Elihu refers to here. We don't often think about that. We take our breath. Every day, every moment for granted. Even sitting here. We don't think of it like that. Now look at Psalm 104. Which is of course the classic Psalm of God's concurrence and preservation. God's creation and preservation of all things in this Psalm. It just goes on and on. We bless Yahweh. The Psalmist says, "O oh my soul. Oh, Yahweh, my God, you are very great, clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers and flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. And you set a boundary that they may not pass over, so that they will not return to cover the earth. And on it goes, sending forth the springs, giving drink to the beasts. The upper chambers of the waters, satisfying everything with the fruit of his works, grass that grows, trees that grow, the animals supplied by the high mountains, verse 18 and following. Verse 24 then, O Yahweh, how many are your works? In wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your possessions, there is the sea great and broad, swarms without number, animals small and great, ships move along, and then, of course, see creatures. And you do all these things by your power. God's creation came into being and is preserved continuously. Notice verse 31. Let the glory of Yahweh endure forever. Let Yahweh be glad in his works He is preserving them having made them. There's nothing about it that reflects any of the power or wisdom or sustaining uh, of man. They're His. He established them and they endure according to His glory. Nehemiah in chapter 9 verse 6 says you are the Lord, you alone, you've made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that's in them, the seas and all that's in them. And you preserve all of them. You preserve them. You make them go. You make them remain. In him we live and move and exist, Acts seventeen twenty-five. In him all things hold together, Colossians 1.17. The the force of that language carries the idea of endurance. The same thing the psalmist said in Psalm 104. The glory of the Lord endures forever. Let him be glad in all of his works. This is the whole point. There's an enduring of it, a holding together of it. Things are kept continually enduring. Were he to remove his preserving work, even for a moment, everything would utterly and instantly cease to have life and existence. And and while the emphasis here is on his purpose and his power to preserve things, the greatest aspect of all of it is that it is happening in him alone. It is according to his glory, his character, his purpose, his person. It's rooted in who he is. And so the perfections of who he is govern his sustaining purposes. This is of course important for us when, when uh, we live out our daily life and we take for granted that all this is going on. It's interesting how quickly God gets our attention when things are not what we want them to be. But when they are what we want them to be, he doesn't have our attention all the time. That must be a joy for him to grow us in that and yet think of his creation not paying attention to him. How much does he endure? How patient is God that his creation isn't paying attention to him, Is his creatures? Romans 1, though they knew God, they did not acknowledge him as God. His creation every day, using the breath he gives them, involved in the purposes and meanings he has put to them in his providences. For the praise and the glory of his grace still does not acknowledge Him as God. Some of them, His redeemed people can go days, weeks, without acknowledging these truths about Him in a meaningful and practical way in our life. This is our great God's preserving work. Hebrews 1 verse 3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. And it is, of course, as Ephesians 1 says in verse 6, 12 and 14, it is to the praise of his glory. So implications would be this, just thinking about it. He sustains us through every detail of life. Second implication, he's thought of everything. We already saw the knowledge of God, the infinite. He's thought of everything. Our first complaint is, Lord, you missed something. You weren't thinking about what I would be going through. You weren't anticipating how this would come across. Lord, there are chain reactions from this circumstance that are now happening in my life. Surely you could have mitigated those. Surely you must have missed something because these chain reactions. Look, I'll take the trial. I'll I'll work through this thing you brought into my life. But this is affecting this and these people and this issue. You must not have thought down the line. But the doctrine of providence and concurrence says otherwise he doesn't just uphold this thing. He's not just planned meaning and purpose in this circumstance for you. He's upholding all things by the word of his power. All concurrences. All ways in which he's working things out for his good and to the praise of his glory, for our good and to the praise of his glory. And at the same time, all of the things that will be affected by it and will move by it and will have to have a purpose behind those issues. All things are upheld and sustained and preserved as he's working out his providence. So implication number one, it's in every detail. Implication number two, everything has been considered. Implication number three, he doesn't lack any power to pull this off. If this is what he's purposed and God has infinite knowledge of his power and its purposes, then he wouldn't be limited in any way to carry it out. So there you go. If he's going to do this for our good and to the praise of his glory, he's not only thought of all the details, It isn't only going to work out in every detail that you see unfold. Everything's attached to his purpose and he has no limit to his power to accomplish it. It's not going to be that he started a process and can't finish it. It's not going to be that something's going to come against this purpose and somehow stop what he'd wanted to accomplish. It's like Romans 8 later would say, any threat that you might imagine could come against his good and glorious purpose to have you in his love and sustain you in his love and bring you to glory in his love and be in eternity in his love. Any threat against that is no threat because height, depth, breadth, Search the universe top to bottom. Search it for any entity, any power, any authority, demonic, supernatural, or human, earthly. Even thresholds in this life, like that which goes from this life to the next, death. Even anything in the circumstances of this life, life and death. There is nothing that could separate us from that grand and glorious outcome. So this third implication is huge for us when something is happening and we need to think about God's sustaining and preserving work through concurrence. He doesn't lack the power to bring about this good. Here's a fourth implication. God cannot do anything that is unwise. I mean these implications just basically come from the complaints of our heart in our flesh. Lord have you have you connected your providence with the details of what's going on? Lord have you thought of everything? Lord are you going to be powerful enough to accomplish what you promise? Lord are you sure this is wise? Here's a third implication or a fifth implication rather from Hebrews 12. All this pressure, all this discipline of the Lord, all this working out of his providences in our life, his holiness is the ultimate goal that he has as the end he wants to achieve. So it is it is that we might share in his holiness. So you have to understand, whatever he is doing, it is tailor-made to increase our virtue, to increase our holiness. And since it is contrasted in Hebrews 12 with the way earthly fathers disciplined as seemed best to them, the implication is our our view and our frame is limited. When I disciplined my kids, I thought I saw justice the way I needed to see it. I thought I saw circumstances the way I needed to see them. Even at the end of a parenting practice to teach my children something, where the Bible was at the center of it, And justice from God was listed in Scripture, and consequences were laid out, and it was put before them. And I, as an instrument of God's discipline, brings that to my children. The implication of Hebrews 12 is that that still is limited. It still could have lacked wisdom. It still might not have achieved all that should have been achieved in my child's life. But by contrast, this could never be with God. Everything God does is that we might share in his holiness and not just share in it, but a perfectly tailor-made circumstance to grow us at at the pace and level that he intended in it. You say, well, where does my effort fit into that? Well, he says later in chapter 12, therefore, here's what I'm wanting you to do. Is he working concurrently through the command for you to do these things and then you do them and his providential working toward holiness works through it? Yes. But he says, so straighten your paths and strengthen the weakened limbs. (coughs) You do that. Because afterward, when you're trained (coughs) by the discipline of the Lord, It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God has not only ordained the outcome and he's working providentially to bring about the outcome because he's preserving all these works that you might share in his holiness, but the means by which that outcome comes to pass is a command given to you to put your hand to the plow and straighten your life. Is any of your failure going to thwart God in this grand purpose? to bring about greater holiness that you might share in it? Nope, even your failure is mixed in in his wonderful purpose. Now that is mystery. How it is he can have an ultimate will and the means by which he carries out that ultimate will and some of those means involve my weakened joints and my misdeeds none of which could ever be unwise. All of which must make me share in his holiness perfectly because he's preserved all things to that end. Which is why 2 Corinthians 4 says his glory is greater than our trouble. that his glory would redound more and more. The Apostle Paul said, hey, death works in us so that life works in you. All the things happening to us in our suffering is for the greater glory to come through more and more people thanking God in all of eternity because through our suffering, he worked in more and more people's lives to know him and to understand him and to come under his love and to repent and for all eternity, they will glorify God in a greater way. So God had a purpose in our suffering, even though we didn't see it. Sometimes we say as a church, isn't it wonderful to imagine that when you get to heaven, all those tentacles are going to be shown to us. For all eternity, you're going to see the intricate ways that all those traceable lines came down to your life when you were born, and the way God worked all those preserving providences into your life to bring about circumstances so that he would save you. And then after having saved you, used your holiness and your growth and your suffering to tentacle out in other ways to other people so that in glory you're going to meet them all. And Paul says it in Second Corinthians 4 that more thankfulness would redound in more and more people to the glory of our great God. Why? Because in his providence and concurrence, he could do no less or he wouldn't be God. He preserves it all for that purpose. So, whatever you're doing, successful or not, whatever you're doing, victorious or not, whatever you're involved in, happy or painful, these are the implications. Lord, you have have worked out every detail. Lord, you've thought of everything and you're carrying every detail out from start to finish and you've thought of everything. You have the power to bring about the praise of your glory through this. You cannot be unwise with my life. Your holiness, reflected through me is the grand goal because your glory is reflected through me being like you and I'm very much not totally like you yet and any trouble that might involve your glory is greater infinitely more precious I think of the lyrics of that song. God is too wise to be mistaken, and He's too good to be unkind. Comes from an old Spurgeon sermon. And the songwriter, the contemporary songwriter, took that line and said So when you don't understand, and you don't see His plan, and you can't trace His hand, then you must trust His. Heart. You he must trust his perfections, I might say. You must trust his providence and his working concurrently for the good of his people. This is our great God. He's preserving all things, He's also directing all things, and though our time is gone, we'll look at this next time, but. He directs His creation. That is Ephesians 1.11. He accomplishes all things according to the counsel of His will. Mysteriously, He's able to work concurrently with everything in His creation such that all things occur as they would in their natural course and yet they're directed by him behind the scenes to bring about these perf- perfect purposes. So, we'll look at how he directs it next time, including evil. What the scriptures say about how he reveals the use, the ordination of, and the directing of that which is against his character in the mystery of that dynamic though he himself no evil emanates from him nor could emanate from him yet in the mystery of it he is infinite and powerful and wise and directs even evil to the praise of his glory While a delicate theological subject and hard to articulate without tripping up, it's a knife edge. We'll let the Bible do it as we talk about it and um, try to understand its implications in our life. Since I think often we move quickly away from biblical truth uh, and into human reasonings when we are suffering and or trying to grasp Uh, somebody else's suffering so it will be important for us to see how God directs his creation outside of even just preserving it alright so those are the initial implications of the doctrine of God's providence let's um, let's talk about it, see what's on your heart and your mind right down here center of the aisle where the beverage service occurs
1: hey good morning pastor thank you very much you're welcome i was wondering if you find it helpful to think in the category of of infralapsarianism and understanding the boundary condition for redemptive history being a fallen creation and all the parameters of our lives being tainted with corruption and sin and how we how we live our own lives how we shepherd our families that we're not, we're not surprised when there's shortfalls and illnesses and things that come up because that is the way he's ordained it. I mean, your, your reference to Ephesians 1.11, that he's ordained it such that he's, he's called us out of corruption. He's, allowed, he's, he's ordained the fall, and that's just the boundary condition for our lives, and we, we shouldn't, therefore, be surprised as these things come up.
0: Well, I do... Uh, believe that the scriptures help us. Uh, the order of the decrees and where you land on that view. I, I've been thinking about that since I was a fairly new Christian and while while ink will be spilt over which lapsarian view you're going to end with, I do believe that we argue over those things and discuss those things because there are places in Scripture that help us understand that there had to have been something in the decrees that included this dynamic. However, one of the reasons I think that um, the helpfulness of that doctrine doesn't quite reach us in our daily practical life is because when we discuss it, we're often trying to answer something God doesn't answer. So, when you get into whether or not um, he decreed a fall or not, um, and the timing of it, I find it much more helpful to remember that God says that everything is to the praise of his glory. He says that. He also says in scripture that some things are not his will. So it's very hard to get into discussions about the order of the decrees and whether that has a practical benefit in my life. Well, God ordained a fall and he ordained suffering, so why am I surprised? That's very difficult when you come across other places where God very, very clearly excoriates evil, hates it, and doesn't want it. So immediately a lapsarian discussion ends up in well then how are we to understand the wills of God? Because there are expressions that indicate in some sense two different kinds of ways he wills things, as I mentioned to you a few weeks back. So sometimes when you're discussed, if you were to say to your children, for example, well, we're not surprised at suffering and evil and killing and tsunamis and dead people and blowups and wars and these kinds of things because God decreed these things, and we're in for lapsarian, and our neighbors over there are super lapsarian, so they have a much more difficult time because they have to wonder when he decreed a fall and all of that. To me, your kids are going to look up at you and say, but why does God then say it's not his will that these things happen? In one sense, he says there's an ultimate will, Ephesians 1.11, that he's accomplishing within which, however, he says there are other things he's prescribed that don't happen. And he calls those his will, even uses language about the will, both in Old and New Testament terminology. So to me, it's much, um, it's fine to discuss it, but, but this is why theological frameworks are developed by some to try to understand the order of the decrees and whether that has a practical benefit in our life. I have always found, even in parenting my children and in shepherding people, that that Scripture doesn't solve the tension as simply as a lapsarian view, it doesn't solve the tension. I, I land somewhere in those theological discussions. I do believe there are Scriptures that tell us that for the grand and glorious purposes of God, he would have had to have decreed these things before everything. But an order or an order to them that's tight and meticulous, it, it's why we end up in discussions about the will of God. So again, we have to use terminology that isn't so tight, which is why Piper in his classic article on the two wills of God uses language like In one sense, or in some sense, God wills this in an ultimate way. In another sense, he wills these things for just such a time that ultimately fulfills his ultimate will, but is, in fact, a stated will, and it gets violated, and he allows it. He not only allows it, he ordains it. It's why sometimes people want to say, God ordains evil, but... They don't explain other places in scripture that clearly indicate God himself cannot orchestrate evil as though evil emanates from him. God does not solve that tension totally either. In fact, any theodicy that pretends he solves it is not reading the scriptures clearly. Um, he doesn't solve that tension, nor does he solve the tension about why it is that in a perfect Genesis 131 environment, with perfect human beings living in untested holiness and no sin could sin. He doesn't solve that either. Nor is it solved by being infralapsarian. Okay, he decreed it, big deal. But in what way and what mysterious sense could he? And then how in the first causes and and, if, you know, finite causes versus instrumental causes and secondary causes, how could he then solve that mystery? Because he doesn't solve that either, right? There are places in scripture where he says, I, I bring these things about. How about in Revelation 17? I put it in their heart to war against the lamb. You, you, you what? You put it in their heart to war against the lamb? Clearly, warring against the lamb is evil. Clearly, you cannot tempt anyone to evil, James 1, and you cannot be corrupted in your person. Let no one say when he's tempted by God, you know, or I've been tempted by God when he's tempted. So how can those two be compatible? Well, in for lapsarianism or lapsarian view doesn't solve that either. What it does is try to help us understand how it is his glory is the ultimate goal, and therefore a fall can fit into that. That's as far as that view goes to me, which is something you would say to your kids, hey, we're not surprised, but there's more to say about our lack of surprise than just, well, I am I have this Lapserian view. Uh, it, it's much more the pages of scripture taken in toto that help us understand why we should not Respond in a sinful way to evil or in a shocked way or in a fearful way. On the other hand, it is true that in Scripture we as human beings do respond to evil in a grieving way and we are to see God responding that way. Can you imagine God being indifferent? Yes, he he is not in his emotional makeup the same as us and it's a mystery even there that he is impassable to the degree that He's never coerced outside of his ultimate glory and purposes, even in his emotional responses. But when he reveals his responses to evil and God's godliest people responding to evil, it's very passionate, it's very expressive, it's very shocked, it's very surprised, it's very, um, uh, you know, terrifying. Sometimes when we talk about a lapsarian view and we say, well, we shouldn't be surprised, we have to be very careful not to be saying we shouldn't be responding in any grief stricken or shocked way at evil either, or even a hatred way of it. So I find those views are much better defined and and taught if we're talking about the scriptures in toto. How does God, and sometimes he doesn't solve the tension. Those theological views are trying to solve a tension. Well, they, they bring us, some solution to the tension. But you got to leave it where God, we have to leave it where God leaves it because he doesn't solve it. And I think sometimes we try to do it because we're a bit embarrassed when a atheist uses that as an argument against the truth. We get embarrassed by that. Oh, I don't, I don't have an answer for the skeptic. And our answer, presuppositionally speaking, is scripture. They are called to believe it because God revealed it. And and no amount of hey prove it to me solves their unbelief problem. Um, we should not be embarrassed by the fact that God leaves those tensions all over in Scripture, particularly when it comes to what He's willing and how He, as we'll see next week, directs He ordains and directs evil, even though it doesn't emanate from Him ontologically. He Himself is not evil, but yet in His supremacy and in His being God, He can ordain it and He can work it through and work it out. He can bring it about without it being a part of Him ontologically. Has He solved that mystery in Scripture? Absolutely not. Nor would we understand it being finite. He has to open up our understanding and will in redemption to one degree or another. Even then, we won't be infinite. We're not infinite in eternity. We're still exploring our infinite, inexhaustible God. So, so yeah, I find it helpful, but sometimes limited in ways guys wouldn't want to think about it because they like to talk about it endlessly, that I'm this view and I'm this view and his decrees and his decrees. and Be careful about that. Insofar as they teach you scripture and the framework is trying to explain what the Bible means in those tensions, great. But where they extrapolate further and think the tension is going to be solved in a view, it's mistaken. I've never found it solved. Like Carson said about about man's responsibility and God's sovereignty and divine sovereignty, it's a framework to be explored. It isn't a tension to be resolved. I think that's humble and right, um, so if that if that helps a little bit. That might be a little bit of a lengthy answer to it, but thought it might be important. Any other questions? Do we want to show of hands which Lapsarian view you take? Uh, infra, supra,
1: <laughs> some <Hey>. middle position? <laughs> yes. Good morning. Um, so. Since, you know, we've been talking about how God ordains all things to, you know, achieve the highest glory for himself so that, you know, that can be on display. Would it be accurate to say that the course of history, the way it has gone, is is the most glorious way things could have gone? And the future will be the most glorious it it could possibly be? Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So, in one sense... That is what the Bible teaches, and that's what we've been talking about. That all of this works to the praise of the glory of His grace. And since God is unlimited in His knowledge and unlimited in His power and, and scope, His purposes, the world He did create, out of all the possible worlds He could have created, this is the one in its unfolding and in its um, eternal purpose this is the one that would bring him the most glory and praise because he could never be diminished in his purpose or lacking in some part of his plan. So yes, absolutely in, in that sense. However, when you read Scripture, though that is true, you come across uh, clearly places in Scripture where in the outworking of this, it doesn't seem to us that he could be glorified supremely in some of what goes on. How could evil bring about an eternal glory that will answer all of the questions we might have about evil? I mean, just human history, a study of even portions of it. I'm fully immersed right now in North American history, as I've told you. And the documented horrors of a people so vile in their tribal practices, their daily life, their godlessness, in this land, to read them is to have to put the volume down sometimes. And, and imagine going and taking a shower. It's hard to conceive of. And that is one slice of a few decades of human history. Nothing at all compared to the evil recorded in Genesis 6 in passing, it seems. Save eight people. When you read passages about sin and its global exploits, it's hard to reconcile with the praise of God's glory yet to be revealed. Doesn't make the first thing you said untrue. This is the only and ultimate way God would be able to reflect His glory to His creation for all eternity in the way that would bring about the greatest expression of it, the most infinite display of it to all of his creation. Otherwise, he would not create. And when he did create, there was no flaw in his purpose and nothing unknown that he's had to tweak since. It was all ordained from before anything was created and it was perfect when he ordained it, including sin. But when you read the pages of Scripture, you're not intended to be indifferent to how... All of that unfolds, or God would have never revealed how it unfolds and how man responds to it. We're in it. God is both transcendent in all of it and imminent. He's near and involved in it and responds to it. He responds to evil. He responds to our prayers that evil would end. He responds to God's people's crying out for help, right? 400 years in bondage was also ordained by God to bring about greater glory and yet he responded intimately and closely with the people and brought them a deliverer and then talked intimately with Moses face to face and responded like they were discussing things as peers even though they were not peers. God ordained all of that intimate, imminent involvement and nearness at the same time transcendent in all of it. So yeah, we are intended to have both things affect us because both are revealed by God. So you're, you're dead on. This is the only world he would have and could have created to bring about the greatest display of his glory, or it wouldn't exist. At the same time, that doesn't make us in our finite minds indifferent to the rest of Revelation where he is near and involved. In fact, I find it thrilling to know that while he's ordained the end of all things for the praise of his glory. He also ordained all the means by which he would bring it about, including his own involvement and his own responses to our prayers." That is amazing. By the way, it made a major difference in our Lord's life while on the earth. No one understood the sovereignty of God more powerfully and passionately and infinitely than our Lord Jesus Christ, the God-Man, who is God of very God, and yet he prayed. So he knew that God had not only, his father had not only ordained the outcome, but also the means by which it would be brought about. And yet he wasn't robotic in it. He prayed, he agonized, he struggled, even in the garden asking the father if there were some other way as he submitted his own person as the incarnate son of God to his spirit to come under it and bring his human will under the divine purpose. He prayed. He was near, he was intimately involved and yet knew the ultimate glory that would come from it he set his face to have it happen and that's that's kind of an example of how we are to respond to it so all of that to say that it is the totality of revelation that helps us stay in all of revelation rather than use a framework to to uh, fall off of one edge of the knife edge Um, So when we're declaring a truth on one side, we always have to remember there's more to understand that, that brings a more comprehensive view of things. Whenever I read theology and I see someone say, hey, here's a framework that might be a plausible way to explain how these things go together, I'm always intrigued by that. Because I know now what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to look up every passage that they put in there. I can assume nothing. Because every time an author writing about a framework theologically to explain something in Scripture that's a tension for us, I know I want to know basically one thing. How close have you been to the collection of the whole council of God in this framework that you say is a plausible way of understanding it? And have you been willing to stay away from lines you can't cross or places Revelation doesn't take you? If you start threatening and extrapolating beyond what Revelation has done because you don't like the tension, I'm going to I'm gonna call you on it. I'm going to highlight that and say that's not right. But at the same time, I do think this is where our study of Revelation leads, is that we, we want to understand our great God and how he works so it has an impact on our daily life. So, yeah. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these revelations about your providence and your good purposes. Lord, we are feeble. Anytime anything goes awry in our personal circumstances, we're just immediately back to ground zero, it seems. And yet we pray that from ground zero, you'd take us back to to your ground zero, the scriptures and build upon what you're teaching us and help us learn it. Be compassionate, O God, to us. We confess our feebleness and our quickness to go back to the flesh. Please forgive us for calling you into question and for our sinfulness, our small-mindedness, our failing to obey you for our weakness. Strengthen us as men, even these grand theological uh, dynamics that we're learning, help us as men to remember them. May it sober us and humble us and uh, send us to prayer more often, more readily, and teach us to be men of God for you, whatever we may be facing, growing in our faith. And in grace we pray in Christ's name,
1: amen.